1: Welcome, new listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games. This is a board game podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? So slightly out of character first, I want to thank all of the listeners who took the time to vote for us for the Golden Geek Awards. Apparently, we got enough votes to be the
0: number one podcast of the year, so that's fantastic. Yeah, my understanding of the Golden Geeks is that now one of us has to be guilt, probably by being submerged in molten gold. And after a poll was taken amongst my parents, they both agreed that I would benefit the most from being encased in a heavy metal. So uh, I'm not looking forward to that part. I voted for you. I appreciate the support, I guess. And we, we're in good company with Board
1: Game Barrage, and this game is broken. Congratulations to all the nominees. Congratulations. So now, no, so now back to the podcast and back in character. I asked for one thing. <laughs> Every year, I ask the listeners for one thing. What's that, Walker? Don't vote so we can get in second. I asked you guys for one thing. Thanks very much. Now I'm going to have to actually go out and, you know, slosh the podcast around and try to get more listeners the hard way. I keep telling you that door-to-door is not the proper way to advertise for a niche internet offering. Well, I'm going to go back to my old method and just run my hand down the phone book. Sorry. I'm very sorry. A phone book is something we used to get in the old days. So we're going to mix
0: things up this week, and we're going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to review our feature game, which this week is The Red Cathedral by DeVere Games. So we got an early preview copy of Vengeance Roll and Fight, Episode 1. Vengeance is a game that was released by Gordon Kalea and Mighty Boards a few years ago. It's a revenge movie simulator, and this is the... Roll and write version, but they've entitled it a roll and fight. It was designed by Gordon Kalea, Norley Lovers, and David Circet, he of every solo mode ever invented. Now, we just got it this afternoon, so we haven't had a chance to put it through its full paces, but I did get a chance to try it a couple times solo, and I'll say the following. It is, by not a small margin, my favorite Roll and Write game, which isn't saying a whole heck of a lot, to be fair. I don't think that the genre has been really well done, but I do have great faith that Vengeance Roll and Fight will have more player interaction than your typical Roll and Write game, and possibly even more player interaction than the original Vengeance, which is typically one of the things we ding it for. Thematically, Vengeance is a tour de force. It is a very visually appealing and thematically compelling experience. And it really captures the essence of what it sets out to capture. Now, Roll and Fight, on the other hand, this is a pre-production copy, so I can't comment definitively, but it seems to strip away a lot of the context. Rather than providing you a situation where you know what the protagonist has gone through at the hands of gangs and thugs, and then you get to wreak bloody vengeance on them, you instead kind of leap into the middle where they just show up and start murdering people. So it makes it a little bit harder to sympathize with them, necessarily. I hope that they're going to do some some good work to situate things contextually, because again, thematically... Vengeance is, is a great triumph, so for Roland fight to be stripped of a lot of that appeal would be unfortunate. But in terms of the actual execution of the aforementioned murder, it's really mechanically interesting because, like many real-time games... So the, the rolling section is in real time. You're trying to satisfy recipes to do various things like move around the board or shoot somebody or punch someone in the face real hard so they never get up again. Punching is fun. Punching is fun. And every time you satisfy one of those recipes, you grab more dice from the common pool. And you can keep doing this until such time as the common pool is gone in the case of multiplayer games or in the case of solo games until the timer runs out. And we're talking about a very quick timer, 45 seconds, 30 seconds, 20 seconds based on how d- your difficulty level. So it's very, very quick in that sense. And then what that does is it generates a pool of actions you can do, which you then execute in any order you want on the main map. Whereas, in the original Vengeance, you just rolled dice, and those dice told you what the actions were available, you had some special abilities that you could trigger, but mostly it was just that. So now, what you you basically doubled up on the decision-making element as far as the fight resolution is concerned. And that part I found very intriguing, and it had the same sort of combat puzzle aspect. But, you with the added benefit of, again, having made some choices in a real-time dice game of generating the actions based on a set of choices you made. It's also got an interesting push-your-luck element, whereby the bad results can be cleared if you take a wound and then you can re-roll all the bad results because like with any real-time dice game, there have to be bad results. Otherwise, it's not much of a game. And I thoroughly enjoyed both, both games I played. Different, two different characters. It's going to be launched on Kickstarter soon with two boxes of four characters each. We have the first set of four characters playing against different bosses and different dens. It's got all the same visual touchstones of the original Vengeance. I got to play with Kaja, who's my absolute favorite character possibly in any board game of the past 10 years. Nice. I'm glad
1: they're using the same art because I really like that sort of you know rough style.
0: Absolutely. It's really compelling, and it would have been, I think, foolish to to change the art direction overall. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how it works with multiple players. I think this is a, a really, really good evolution of the roll-and-write genre that has been desperately looking for a way to make it into a more compelling game, rather than just filling out a spreadsheet. I've commented before that a super skill pinball 4 Cade, which many people praised for its sense of spatiality, it absolutely had a sense of spatiality, but I still felt like I was doing paperwork. Whereas, in Vengeance, Roll, and Fight, you still have that sense of spatiality, because you're literally moving around a map and beating people up, and you have to solve that little spatial puzzle. But it is not the case that you're doing paperwork because instead of crossing off while well, it's like now i need now i need a 2 and then a 3 and then a 4 and then i get my 15 points like no 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 i need to destroy these thugs and that is just Maybe the theme doesn't appeal to you, but it's at least more narratively coherent than filling out a spreadsheet, and it will make you feel less like you're doing paperwork. As I was
1: saying, less like doing your taxes or a spreadsheet, and a little more like actually playing a game.
0: Precisely. And so I'm very much looking forward to the full multiplayer experience. I think that the designers of Vengeance, Roll, and Fight have done an excellent job of both adapting an excellent property and of evolving a very staid and tired game format. And that is our early experiences with Vengeance, Roll, and Fight. So, this last Saturday, like we always do, we streamed another game. This time it was Blood Rage"
1: by Eric Lang, put out by Coolman or not. Blood Rage is a drafting, broken combo, giant plastic meeples on a map type game that is a group favorite. Unfortunately, I got thrashed by <laughs> by not really realizing Fenrir was going to come yet once again. And once again, I built my strategy around people dying.
0: And my people did not die. <laughs> Here, Here's the thing about Fenrir. A lot of people complain about Fenrir. I've been saying for years, and I'll keep repeating it, when you're going to do the end of the world in Norse mythology, you can either have the giant wolf that swallows the moon, or you can do it wrong. And I, I'm i somewhat defensive of Fenrir because I like him thematically so much. Uh, my favorite god in all of uh, mythological Settings is Tier. I like the relationship between Tier and Fenrir. It's fascinating, and I like the mini as well. And so, and whenever I have the chance of drafting Fenrir, it doesn't matter what my strategy has been for this point. I always take him. And so naturally, I bear the brunt of, "Oh, Fenrir is broken. Fenrir doesn't doesn't do good things for the game. Fenrir was a Kickstarter extra, and therefore was not well designed." I once chatted with Eric Lang, and he said the stretch goal designed afterwards. Therefore, Fenrir is broken and busted. Yes, thank you, Dr. Stallone. We know you have strong opinions on Kickstarters. Very nice. We also played with some of the new promos from the new set, namely Nidhogger. This is all because this was all in the Tabletop Simulator mod we used. We didn't use the official Tabletop Simulator mod because, quite frankly, it just supports fewer modules, and so we use one of the free ones available. And Nidhogger was interesting. Uh, I think that with more experience, Nidhogger might be the new Fenrir in terms of people complaining about Yeah, I, like after I was thinking back on how he could
1: have been used, I, I don't think I – I don't want to say I misused him. it just the opportunities didn't didn't come as I thought they would. And sometimes I brought him out a little earlier than I should have type thing. But yes, you, it, it's not, you, not didn't, as- you didn't have Nidhogger. Huey had oh, I, Nidhogger. Thought, I thought that was the, the, the pig –
0: Oh, the pig is just interesting. I don't think anyone's going to complain about the pig being overpowered. Nidhogger has an effect whereby after a battle in which Nidhogger survives, Nidhogger gets one point for every dead thing Ah. that the other players have. And very much like a lot of the other broken combos seek to capitalize off another broken combo, you sick Nidhogger on the person who wants people to die. people. So... Every strategy is complained about in Blood Rage. This is why I prefer not to play with whiners, but unfortunately I have to play with walkers, so my, my lot is what my lot is. But the Loki strategy of piling up all the cards that say, now I get six points for every dead thing that I have in Valhalla. Well, Nidhogger is the counter to that by that dragon going and capitalizing on all the dead things. So it's an interesting evolution of a, of a, of a sort of evolving rock, paper, scissors meta.
1: Yeah, I love the. It does have a a direct comparison to Kemet, where when you have a fight, your troops don't matter. You sort of, because you can always pull them back and and bring them out again. You just have to know that, you know, your guys are going to die. It's not the traditional meeples on a map or troops on a map. You just have to lose your guys when you know it's going to be beneficial to you and not worry about bringing them back out later. It's got the classic, you know, sort of the same as chaos in the old world, and you have a certain number of chaos points, and you and you count down, and as soon as you get to zero, then you're out of actions, and, and everyone else gets to do stuff while you do not. That was Blood Rage. Stay tuned next Saturday, which I think will play Red Cathedral at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. I did not agree to this. Okay, we are not playing Red Cathedral at 10 a.m. Eastern. We'll talk. We
0: will be playing a game at 10.30 Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> we played Nadavalier Thingvalier. Uh, this was, again, on Board Game Arena. They have an adaptation of both Nadavalier and its expansion, Thingvalier. And I stand by our, our assessments of Nadavelir. It's a very light, quick, approachable, fun game. Mostly about drafting, a little bit about blind auctions. I will say that playing a couple more times with the Thingvelir expansion made me appreciate the Thingvelir expansion more. Because we're now up to about double digit plays of Nadavelir. And in a, in a modern hobby context, that almost character <laughs> qualifies as a minor miracle. Because of the relentless pace of releases. And that's not to say that it doesn't deserve that many plays, it's just at a certain point it becomes almost all about the different heroes you're drafting, or just running up the clock on a a single suit of cards to get lots of points. And Thingvalier upsets that a little bit in a very, very satisfying way. And so suddenly, whereas in previous rounds you might say, okay, well I don't really care about winning either of these two bids, so what difference does it make? You might think, ah, but every time I win a bid I can go to this other sideboard. And so that introduces a significant tension in the bidding that I very much appreciate People feel more like they need to win more of the bids. And that really tightens up the eco- economical element as well as just introducing a number of very, very simple to apply, but nonetheless interesting card effects. And I'm very glad that Board Game Arena implemented the Thing Thingolier expansion. And I'm looking forward to trying it in on my physical copy when and if, uh, you know, physical gaming is a thing.
1: It'll never be allowed. I really like how they, they dealt with the heroes as well. The fact that they stay in your sort of side call them until that round is over. And the then you challenge get area. The challenge area. And then you get to apply them to your different rows. So, uh, you know what I mean? It doesn't, you know, heap on the extra points right away.
0: Yeah, the the mercenaries. The mercenaries are dual suited and you can allocate them later. So they'll, they'll be very useful for scoring, but will not help you draft a new hero early. So, yes, there's a bit of a trade-off there. So, Reiner
1: Karnitzia this year put out two Whale Rider games. One, the board game, and one, the card game. And I got to play them both. Uh, one with Butterfly Babe. I also got to play Abandon All Artichokes with her and she enjoyed them both. Abandon All Artichokes because of the cuteness of the cards and how adorable they are. They are very cute. And Whale Riders because it's just a very interesting and well thought out game. And Whale Riders, you're, you're going to different markets and you're, and you're playing cards to trying to finish out that suit. I guess you could say, you know, it could be a suit of shells, and as soon as it gets to three, then shells will will score, but everyone can, you know, can sort of uh, build on shells type thing. So you got to decide whether you're going to co-op with everybody or try to get to your own, you know, total before everybody else can. It's very interesting. I'm looking forward to playing with more players.
0: What did you think, Mark? So Whale Riders, the card game, which is what we're talking about now, it was originally published in uh, 2000 as Trendy, and then it was republished in 2007 as the Horsefare card game. Uh, Reiner could gets a lot of flack for republishing his games a lot, and uh, that's fair. That's entirely, entirely fair. I've only tried it two players as well, and I'm not really in a position to comment. It really seems like the kind of thing where it would feel very different with multiple players. I would be concerned with many players, though it might have a sort of a take that element involved, because as you say, once a suit scores, all your other played cards go away. And so the hand management gets a certain element of tension there, but I don't know if that's undercut by a feeling of arbitrariness. So I'm, I'm curious. It, it, it felt to me a little bit like llama of the card game, which is, yeah, this works. But if it were published by anybody else, it wouldn't be published. I really get the strong sense that if any other designer tried to publish this game, I don't know that they'd ever get to publish it once, let alone three times. It's functional. I don't know if there's a lot there there. But I'm curious, and I'm willing to give Reiner Kinsey the benefit of the doubt.
1: And then there's Whale Riders the board game, which is very comparable to Sumatra. It's very much move around, collect a bunch of different resources and score off combos of those resources. So in this particular one you're moving down a, a straight track until you get the end until you get to the end and then back up you know back up the coast to finish off the game and you as you're going down, you're collecting the resources, trying to fulfill contracts it's very much sort of like a you know do I travel do I get ahead you know waste actions and get ahead of my opponents or do I wait and risk getting you know the resources that I want? I found it, it's very interesting and I can't wait to play it more.
0: I can't wait to play Whale Riders again. The board game is marvelous. We both enjoyed Sumatra well enough. It was a game that was about drafting and timing and a very Knizia-like, well, this scores with triangular scoring and this scores in increments of five, but only if you have enough baubles to fill out the increments of five. And it was a vaguely creepy kind of voyeuristic theme of white people going to gawk at the Islanders in Sumatra. But in the context of Whale Riders, what you do is it's more approachable because the scoring is very simple. You're trying to fill these specific recipes, so you don't have to worry about five different kinds of scoring conditions and there's a market element where you have to worry about paying for the goods and the timing element is really blown up in terms of its decision space because rather than just being one step ahead of everybody else as you say there's this large track you could be at the beginning of the track and just sit there for most of the game just buying resources up or you can try to rush ahead to get to the new territories or somewhere in between and so the the room for opportunism for tempo considerations for plays about cornering the market in certain areas of rushing the end End game because you want to just go start buying points, or just sitting out and waiting, going for lots of small contracts, bigger contracts. It's marvelous. I really, really liked the tension the cut and thrust of the economic elements there. And it's just one of those games that really strikes me as an excellent Knizia introductory game that nonetheless has lots of room for more experienced gamers to appreciate. I mean, a lot of people, when they're talking about gateway games, they tend... The same games tend to get mentioned all over the time. I could, I generally think that there are like any five Knizia lightweight games that can yeah, serve as like brilliant.
1: Blue, Blue Lagoon, you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. Blue Lagoon, now Whale Riders, Lost City's the board game, Lost City's the card game. Just fabulous, fabulous games that take hardly any time to explain at all, aren't nearly as mathy as people make them out to be, and are just super engaging and tight. I really liked Whale Riders.
1: So you were nice enough to introduce me to an older game that I had never got a chance to play before. And this is Lancaster, designed by Mathis Kramer and put out by Queen Games. This is a sort of worker placement, but they're, it's sort of like, uh, Outlive, where your workers are sort of, uh, leveled. You know, they're all sorts of different levels. They're soldiers from one to four. And you get to upgrade them and they're useful when they're higher in different places. And overall, I thought it was very interesting. There was like a whole bidding system. There was a whole trying to get your victory point conditions, you know, voted on correctly and sort of building up to different strategies. I think overall it was very interesting.
0: I really enjoyed it. I tried it once shortly after its release two-player, and it struck me, again, as one of those things that's not not its best with two, but potentially interesting. I should check back in with it later. And now it took me only ten years to do that, so here we are. Uh, Lancaster, which is to be differentiated from Lancashire Hotpot, which is a different thing entirely, is, as you say, a worker placement game where you can bully your other bully other workers out if your workers are fatter, because that's how the world works. And there's this interplay... Between the board placement and the victory conditions, the victory conditions, as you say, are, are voted on in a, in a pseudo political system whereby you have to capitalize on the scoring conditions that are presented to you. Now, you can score points conventionally. There are lots of things that are not dependent on this political system, but the interplay between the resource management on the board and the resource management in terms of furthering your own agenda to score more points I thought was really interesting. It's also the case that I can't remember the last time I played a worker placement game that allowed you to get more workers and or upgrade your workers where it felt as neatly intertwined with so much of the rest of the game. And what I'm referring to specifically is the Agricola problem. In Agricola, you need to get as many workers as you can because they are worth so many points and the extra actions are so consequential that you can't help but do it. The more common recourse, just to mention another Uwe Rosenberg game, is, well, you're going to get more workers, but they're going to come at a fixed rate and everyone gets the same number of workers, i.e. a feast for Odin. But Lancaster manages to give you the opportunity to get more workers, but it's not the overwhelming predominant aspect of the game now it's important you can't ignore it But it's not the be-all, end-all, and it's not the kind of thing you need to organize everything around. And I really appreciated that. I thought that was fascinating. Coupled that with the fact that some worker spaces are gated based on the strength of your worker. You can't show up until you've got upgraded workers, which again is another pressure. Do you go for lots of small workers? Do you go for a smaller number of fat workers? Do I rely on voting in laws that will give me more workers if I meet the specific conditions? I thought it was really interesting and really clever. We have the big box version, but we didn't try any of the expansion material yet. And I'm looking forward to trying the new expansion material. One of them is just a new set of laws that just shuffles in easily. And I, w- I found it very compelling in a very sort of dry middleweight euro kind of way. I mean, I couldn't tell you anything about the theming of Lancaster because it's just entirely irrelevant. And it was mostly just a procedural element of, well, I need to get this chit so I score more points. But there was enough player interaction and enough competition and enough clever mechanisms that I found it really engaging. I had the mechanism where you put your
1: workers, all the workers out first, and then you... Then you activate after everyone's put out the workers and it had the, the really cool part where you activate them in a certain order so you could plan ahead and say, well, I'm going to upgrade this worker before I need it down here and now since this worker's upgraded I now beat these people in this area majority part of the game. So I like that, how you could combo off and sort of plan out what you need to do and surprise your opponents and so they weren't ready for certain things to happen.
0: Yeah, the timing elements were not omnipresent but where they existed were really clever. For example, there's another area of the board that will give you immediate bonuses. And immediate bonuses in Lancaster are few and far between. Usually it's, I gather this resource so I can hope to get this law passed, but the law pass later on in the round and have effects later and so there were a number of instances where it's like i really need a benefit right now so i can do something oh okay well i can do that but with difficulty and so you're right the timing elements were really cool yeah there's a lot to recommend it uh, matthias kramer is you know he's a solid euro designer he designed watergate he designed glenn Moore, but i really do think that based on initial exposure that this might be my favorite of his offerings and i am looking forward to trying new stuff and i'm looking forward to trying it again you now got to play Cubitos again. This is by John D. Claire and put out by
1: AEG. I think it's quickly wearing thin. I think the heads down, no play interaction is quickly making itself quite apparent. And the way that the different scenarios try to shoehorn you into a particular play style is a bit jarring in some cases, you know, you can still try to do your own thing, but if you don't follow, you know, the way they want you to collect dice, then you're not going to do as well as someone that does.
0: I am disappointed that the race element is indeed as superficial as we feared. It's mostly just a question of, like any other deck builder, you're getting victory points, but here victory points are just measured as steps along a path. And yeah, there's some decisions to be made with respect to the path, but there's no blocking, there's no element there. Whereas even in a very simple deck building racing game like Quest for Eldorado by Reiner Canizia, welcome to the Reiner Canizia Show, everyone. There is blocking, you do care about player order, you do care about getting to some places first, and there's there's a little bit more of a race feeling. Cubitos, at the end of the day, although very clever, I still really enjoyed it, you're right, it just ends up feeling a lot more like your standard traditional deck builder. Which is to say, not a lot of player interaction, try to build your combo, you build the combo that breaks the game, and then someone breaks the game and, and runs away with the victory. Figuratively, not literally, because it doesn't feel like you're actually running at all. It's cute, it's charming, it's still my favorite of John DeClair's designs, but again, that's not saying very much. And I appreciate that they tried to do something different with the deck-building formula, but at the end of the day, it just it, it feels very much like your standard deck-building formula, even though it has this element of push-your-luck put on top of it, which is not nothing, but at, I, I wish the race element had been more pronounced.
1: Yeah, more race and more player interaction would have made this game pretty well over the top, I think.
0: It's true, but a solid effort, I'd have to say. We got to play some more games of Regicide. Regicide is a review copy we got from the designer, from Badgers from Mars. A standard 52-card deck with a couple of jokers. It's still really hard and super satisfying. I am still enjoying this game every time I play. Every play feels painful in the best possible way. Because as as I said before, every play you want to be a Heart, Diamond, Spades club. And every time you have to discard a card, you feel like you're all the cards are in your hand you desperately want to keep at all times, but you have to play, you have to discard. I, the pressure is relentless and I love it.
1: Well that is the one part where I have to disagree, because there's not all not I don't want all the cards in my hand. <laughs> I, I don't want these threes and twos. <laughs> and and I wish I could think of a strategy in order to cycle those without, you know, being penalized so badly. You
0: well know, you try I'd, to build you try to build pairs. Yeah, I suppose. If, if you've got a three, try to hold onto it until you get another three. You can even play up three threes at once if you want to. You can play pairs, you can play triples, you can play quadruples so long as the sum is ten or less and that is the use of the lower value cards. But every time I take damage and even if I just have to dis- uh, discard, you know, four cards worth of damage, I look at that three of clubs and figure, but it's clubs. Clubs are great. I don't want to get rid of a club. Oh, I can get rid of this diamond. Oh, but I love diamonds. Diamonds are so useful. Oh, but we need hearts too. It, it's sometimes games are too agonizing. And it just feels like you're doing work. But Regicide is a co-op game that is really simple and relatively quick. And so the difficulty, I think, feels just right. The unrelenting nature of your challenges is great. There's just the right level of forward planning, just the right level of hand management. I I have to just go back to what you're saying because it's so true.
1: It's like I need to defend 10 damage. And I have this jack in my hand. And jacks are so great. And if I play it, everyone will look at me like... Like I'm an awful, awful person, <laughs> but it's the only way I can defend. And you absolutely sort of meekishly put it out and, and you get the glare.
0: And <laughs> I, 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 this is so great. Yeah. So Regicide, I think is just going to live permanently in my bag so I can just take it with me wherever I go. But then, then the cards might get tattered and they're so pretty. No, I'm not going to sleeve them. Stop looking at me like that. So that's Regicide by Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale of Badgers from Mars. I really, really recommend Regicide very highly. So I went back to another older game on
1: Board Game Arena, Cacao by Phil Walker-Harding. I was playing it with some listeners, and this is another great sort of gateway intro game. It's a tile layer where you're you're, uh, collecting cacao, and you're trying to sell it, and these different markets come up, and you're trying to utilize these tiles better than everyone else. And they have this very interesting scoring system where you're at negative 10 points. At the beginning, and you're and you're trying to maneuver your your tiles so your the gauge goes up, and it's got this very critical point where it goes past zero, and then there's a couple you know one or two points, and then it starts ramping up again. So you just sort of have to decide: Am I going to invest all the way in and try to you know lose out on getting other victory points, or us or am I just going to try to hover at zero and then work on other things? So Cacao, very interesting game. If you have a chance to check it out, it is on Board Game Arena.
0: Also on Board Game Arena, played Jekyll vs. Hyde. Walker's been talking about this for some time, and Walker very kindly showed me the ropes. This is a two-player trick-taking game where one side wants the tricks to be equal, and the other side wants the tricks to be as unequal as possible, i.e. either shooting the moon or going null, or as close as possible to that. And I found the asymmetry interesting... What I found really interesting was the way Trumps are determined. So basically Trump is whatever is last shows up. There are three suits of cards. And as a suit shows up, it is slotted in at the lowest level of the Trump hierarchy. But I I, I have to say, this is just based on one play, and I'm just curious about your experience because you've played it more. It seems to me that Hyde has a really, really tough row to hoe because Hyde is the one who wants big blowouts uh, in either direction, but Hyde... There's only three rounds to the game. The track is really long for Hyde to score points. And Hyde is probably not going to lead play for the first two of the rounds, unless Hyde is really doing well. As a result, Jekyll has a tremendous ability to set what Trumps are. And so Jekyll just gets a look at their hand and figure out, okay, well, which of these three colors do I want to be Trump? And they're usually able to do it. Now, there are some special effects, of course. One of the special effects wipes the Trump board, and so it resets things there. Sure. Uh, but if you're doing that, then you're not Leveraging one of the other special benefits. Anyhow, I thought it was clever and very thinky and very brain burny, but very hard for Mister Hyde. What are, What are your experiences? No, I agree with you. If if you have two experienced players, which is, I
1: guess, is the best way to play it, or with two people that have never played it before, there'd be more back and forth, of course, because they, you know, they're not quite sure how trick taking games are played. But with two people that know exactly what they're doing, it is very much more difficult for for Hyde. And he really needs to rely on what cards are not being played. Like, there's five cards that are out of the game for that particular round, and he sort of has to, you know, gamble on what those cards are in order to, you know, eke out those last, you know, few movement points.
0: Yeah, that was one of those areas where I really wasn't prepared to do the kind of thinking that I ought to have been doing in order to play super competitively, because, as you say, there are only five cards out of the game. And so if you've got a hand of ten cards and there are five cards out of the game, you can make reasonable inferences about what your opponents got in their hand. And that kind of card counting, I'm perfectly okay with in a uh, game experience. But as I say, I wasn't ready for that kind of level of, of thinking or, or deduction involved. And so the first f- few hands especially felt very arbitrary to me. But again, that, that, was, that was a me problem, not a Jekyll versus Hyde problem. And so I thought it was a clever twist on trick-taking. But I, again, I, I, really, I, I really wonder about the balance and so, But I, I'm interested to find out. Yeah, I'm definitely going to pick it up, because
1: my mother plays bridge a lot, and so anytime a trick-taking game comes out, that's two-player, because there's, there's a very hard, small genre for two-player trick-taking It's true. Games. I explained it to her today, and she's more than willing to give it a try, so that should be fun. So as promised, I played Railroad Inc. Blazing Red Edition. <laughs> so this is another roll and write, where you roll tracks, and it's one of the ones where you have to take Everything that's there. So you're sort of like having tracks go out in the middle of nowhere while you're making other tracks (laughs) look beautiful. In the red edition, you have a giant volcano in the middle and you're making these little pools of lava, or you could have meteors coming down. There's also meteor dice in the red set. So you could have meteors crashing down and blowing up your roads and tracks. That, that was fun. So like I said, I didn't mind, you know, it's a roll and write. It's one of the ones, you know, unlike what we talked about earlier, where it's, you know, fun to play and interesting, where you get to punch people, this, <laughs> you get to build tracks that you hope connect and probably won't connect and very frustrating. I don't know, meteors sound very exciting. They were mildly exciting. It. <laughs> it's published by Horrible Guild and it's designed by Helmer Hatch and Lorenzo
0: Silva. These are actually the people, I keep forgetting this, Railroad Inc. was designed by the people who, who did the King's Dilemma. Interesting. My favorite game from two years ago. My favorite game this year so far. Well then. So those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter.
1: That's us go over the Board Game Geek, Golden Geek Awards, Mark, very quickly. <laughs> okay. Just because we should. You know, that's what we Should do. we? I think so. Okay. Because not a lot of people, maybe some people don't look at Board Game Geek. Sure. Uh, maybe they, these are some games that they haven't heard of, but maybe, I'm sure we've talked about all of these. We'll go over them very quickly. Two-player, a game we both love, Undaunted North Africa.
0: Yes, big props to David Thompson. He had a number of games eligible. Last year was a stellar year of output from him. And if you recall from our Best of 2020 episode, several games of his were mentioned by me in different categories. So congratulations to David Thompson and to Trevor Benjamin, his co-designer.
1: Artwork presentation was On Mars by Ian O'Toole. Best card game. Now, if you want to go down a rabbit hole and waste a whole bunch of time... Yeah, I know. Please join in in the conversation on Board Game Geek whether or not Dune Imperium, a deck-building game, is a card game or not. Can I just editorialize for a moment? You sure can, because... Because,
0: wow. Having read a fair bit about... I, I think we're on the same page. Having read a fair bit about the nominations process and the awards process, and this is setting aside what anyone has said about our category, just setting this aside. We're talking about the games here. There is a particular set of of, of tonal and rhetorical inflections that are very characteristic of the discussion on board game geek and allow me to sort of synthesize it or parody it thus. Well, you know, these categories are subjective, but here's the only correct way that they could be set up. I've got no dog in this fight. It's a popularity contest, which leads me to another observation. People are like, Oh, why did all these popular games get nominated and win? It's a popularity contest. I'm sorry your tastes don't accord with the masses. If you want a more curated awards setup, there are more curated awards setup. But don't complain that it's a popularity contest when it's clearly a popularity contest. There are legitimate complaints about how you run your popularity contest. But, I mean, come on. And then on that note, Cooperative Game, Gloomhaven, Second Edition.
1: Sorry, sorry, I misspoke. Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. Best Expansion, Wingspan, Oceana, because Wingspan had to be on there. Innovative, because it brought Where's Waldo to a new level. Micro Macro Crime City. I will not begrudge Micro Macro Crime City from any award. I won't either. But Innovative? Okay. Uh, Well,
0: I mean, as compared to what?
1: True. Well, Beyond the Sun was in there as well. What was Innovative of Beyond the Sun?
0: That That's just it. The designer, Dennis Chan, freely admits that Beyond the Sun came about the way a lot of Euros came about. He borrowed elements from a whole bunch of other Euros that he really liked. Light Game of the Year, Micro Macro Crime City. Yes! 100%. Uh, medium, Lost Ruins of Arnok. They should change how this popularity contest was run because yeah. the, the popular vote doesn't accord with my taste. Heavy Game of the Year. Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. It can't be heavy because it's a lighter version of Gloomhaven. That uh, that logic doesn't follow. I mean, the ASL starter kits are lighter versions of ASL, but that doesn't necessarily mean that ASL starter kits are light. My only complaint is we both love Gloomhaven. We both think Gloomhaven is a great game.
1: Gloomhaven came out X number of years ago. There's not much changed in this particular version. Surely the big, the beginning of a scenario they've set with the card so it's a lot easier to learn. The that, campaign system is very that, much. That's a call down. that we,
0: we editorially made the call that we felt the new iteration of Gloomhaven didn't deserve its own status in the ranking systems. BoardGameGeek made a different call, and that's fine.
1: 100% fine. That's why I said, in my opinion. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Print and play, I have nothing, nothing,
1: I've not played any of these, but uh, Seven Wonders Duel Solo won that. Best solo game, Mark and I both played, Under Falling Skies, I thought it was fantastic. Really like that too, yeah. Most thematic game, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion.
0: Well, it's not most thematic game, it's best thematic Sorry, game. Yes. thematic game,
1: Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. War game, Imperial Struggle. Which we both played and thought was fairly adequate. I quite liked it. Yeah. I, I I liked it a lot more than you did. But then again, I'm more of a wargamer gamer than you are, so. Most zoomable game. Forgotten Waters. I suppose so, right? I guess it's, you know, a lot of story-driven talking. I guess it would be a good zoomable game.
0: Yeah, if you're willing to do your dramatic readings over zoom,
1: then that'll yep. work. And best board game app. I played all of these, and they're all very good. Route1. Followed by Wingspan and Cartographers, both all of them implementations very good, regardless of the particular game that they're implementing. And that is the Board Game Geek Awards for 2020. Congratulations to all the winners and to all the nominees. Next up is Witchstone. We I've already talked about Witchstone. It's going to be a new Reiner Knizia game. It's being compared to Bonfire, but I think it's going. I think that's just a knee-jerk reaction because of of certain elements and color palettes and other things. From what I've read, it seems so it's going to be much different and I'm looking forward to giving it a try. There's a huge write up on it on board game geek right now. So if you're interested at all, take a look. One of Rainer Knutia's rare collaborations. Mark, I know you're trying to flush out your monopoly collection. And I know you're saving (laughs) a particular hole for D and D monopoly, D and D monopoly. But guess what? It's coming out. You can finally complete your collection, and all will be happy. Thanks for letting me know about that, Walker. I feel Ugh. complete. And some Kickstarter news. There's a game coming out by Renegade Games. It's only going to be on Kickstarter and sold on their website afterwards. It's called My Father's Work, designed by TC Petty III, and it's going to be like a heavy app app game. You're like playing three generations of mad scientists trying to, you know, bring to life certain elements of, you know, that kind of theme. and It seems very interesting. It has like a sort of spiral bound map that you put in the middle of the board, so the map's going to change all the time. Going to be very, uh, legacy elements,
0: and I'm looking forward to giving it a try. I noticed you backed it on Kickstarter. I sure did, yeah. Also on Kickstarter, it currently is Stationfall which is designed by Matt Eklund. Allow me to emphasize that again. Matt Eklund. And this is a large player count, hidden motives kind of free-for-all. It's getting rave early reviews from some people I trust, like Dan Thoreau and Cole Worley. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how it works. It's got a, a science fiction theme, which is always great. And it appears to be the sort of ride the chaos into it. What other people are trying to do sort of game that I appreciate if it's able to either tell a convincing enough narrative or be a tight enough gameplay experience. And it is definitely the case that amongst the critics I trust, it seems to at least accomplish the former. Whether it also accomplishes the latter, I don't know. And so this is on Kickstarter currently. I am looking forward to giving it a try in some form or another. It is available to preview on a variety of online implementations. Finally, I would encourage all of you, new new listeners included, to take advantage of my stupidity. I have a Dark Legion pledge of Siege of the Citadel 2nd Edition. I don't want it. It's in my house. I want it gone. If you want to fill out a form to apply to get this copy for free, well, free in the sense that I won't charge you for the game. I will charge you for shipping. So for the cost of shipping, you can have my copy of Siege of the Citadel and about 12 million expansions. The link is being provided in the episode notes, or you can find a link to it on our Facebook group. Please take my game.
1: That is the news and
0: why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our feature game, which is Red Cathedral. The Red Cathedral was designed by Israel Sandrero and Sheila Santos, a collaboration that call themselves Lama Dice Games, which I think is unreasonably confusing on the basis of the fact that there is a game called Lama Dice. Well, they did get there first, though, so I will give them that. And this was published by Devere Games last year. Llama Dice Games, the, the pair of Cendredo and Santos, has published a number of designs, starting with Aloha Pioha, and, which was a game about ticks trying to pull a little girl's hair. Underused theme for sure. And they published a number of other games since. Uh, Monder- Mondrian the Dice Game, Raymaster, Ramen 1987 Channel Tunnel, and Smoothies, a game about smoothies. We have not played any of these games. Hey, it runs the whole gambit there, doesn't it? It run- definitely runs the gambit. I mean, as we all know... You can lay out game themes on a spectrum. At one end, there is parasites tugging on hair follicles. At the other end, you have smoothies. And so clearly they've covered the entire range and are now ready to retire. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in the Red Cathedral?
1: Well, Red Cathedral is based on an actual building in Moscow in Red Square. It was built back in 1555 and finished, they say, in 1561, which is not too long. I think from buildings back in that time, I thought they took, you know, years and years to build.
0: Well, okay. well, you brought it up. So this was an existing structure. And that period when it was kind of built upon by uh, Tsar Ivan, yes, that Tsar Ivan, the one you're thinking of. And it is now known as St. Basil's Cathedral. It was not known as St. Basil's Cathedral at the time because at the time there was no St. Basil. <laughs> he wasn't a saint yet. In fact, he was still alive. Uh, it is now known as the Cathedral of the Intercession of the Most Holy Theokolos of the Moat, also known as the Cathedral of St. Vasily the Blessed, uh, Basil, also known as the Fool for Christ. Uh, this is a particular kind of paradigm of saint that I, I, I read up on called a uh, Yurodivai. I apologize for the pronunciation. And this is all very theologically fascinating, and I really do like uh, bits about the construction of the cathedral. Apparently it was very pioneering in its use of mortar and brick, and so the artisans went nuts. It's a very iconic look in Red Square, but it didn't look like that at the time. The colors were added much later, and it's been modified and renovated. It's got nine spires and a very, very compelling uh, arrangement. I love the, the image of the cathedral, I love the story of the cathedral, and the cathedral is about ten times more interesting than anything that happens in the game. I'm sorry, Walker, I interrupted you. Why don't you continue with an unhelpful summary of what happens at the game? I sure will. The Red Cathedral is a
1: really cool action efficiency area majority sort of tableau builder where you're managing your inventory and coins so that when the dice are against you, you can either claim a building or build one of the ones that you have already claimed.
0: So I want to like the Red Cathedral, and there's a lot that I do like about it, but I feel that the clever bits don't really come together in any sort of compelling way. Why don't we start with one of the bits that I think is the most outwardly clever but fails to cohere in the most obvious way, and that is the resource accumulation. On your turn, you can do one of three things. One of them is accumulate resources. There's this wheel, and the dice occupy various spokes of the wheel, and when you select a die, it moves forward a number of spokes equal to the number, and then you activate wherever it lands. If there are multiple dice there already, well, you benefit from the effects of there, and so you can either trigger the space you land on once, up to three times if there are any other other dice. That part is neat. You get to look at the board and figure out your options, like, okay, well, this could give me four wood, but I don't really need wood. Like, This could only give me one gold, which is what I need, but it's not there. The problem that I have about this is that it, well, twofold. First of all, it suffers a tiny bit from what I will call the Settlers of Catan problem, whereby the system gets starved of resources based on the random vicissitudes of dice. Every time we've played, there's been a situation where some combination of resources is just not well represented on the board as available actions. Like, just nobody's getting stone for the next little while, or nobody's getting wood for the next little while. And so you have everyone staring at the resource board, doing the mental calculation again. It's like, okay, yellow's at 2, one, two oh, that's not where I need it to be. Green's at 5, one, two, oh, that's not where I need it to be. Oh, well, it's not going to give me anything I want. Okay, I guess I better go do something crazy suboptimal then. And I don't find that especially satisfying.
1: Well, that's what I talked about at the beginning. You sort of have to make sure you have the resources ready. Look at the board. If there's dice that give you something you want, then that's when you take the action. If it's not, then you've prepared and you have your stuff ready to do something else instead. There's other things that you can do. There's uh, ways you get to re-roll the dice. You get to move the white die or your own die further
0: to try to help you get those resources that you want. Further is fine, but you can't move it less far. And the way you get to re-roll dice is by losing points. It is 100% true. And at the beginning of the game, we'll talk a little bit more about the scoring later. At the beginning of the game, that that ability is very expensive. It could lose you three, four uh, points or more. And in a game where the final score can be somewhere around 45-ish, That's not really an appealing proposition, especially since you then just get to re-roll some dice, not even be guaranteed about where it's going to land. I'm not saying that the resources are overall too parsimonious. I just mean that the efficiencies and inefficiencies of the resource generation of the board in the Red Cathedral don't make me feel like it's so much clever as just randomly introducing shortages that cause the game to stall a little bit. My second criticism, which which bothers me a lot more, is when you have those situations where the board is relatively suboptimal... And somebody takes a move and then they re roll the dice. What often happens then is the player to the left is the beneficiary of this new board state. What they roll, if they randomly roll a result, which means that there are lots of resources that are now plentiful, or a previously scarce resource has suddenly been introduced, this isn't something that someone can plan for. It's just, oh, the person to my right had to take a suboptimal move, and now the board looks great, and then someone gets to jump on it. This doesn't make me feel like people are making clever decisions. It's just, you know, dice being silly the way dice are. True, I found it.
1: The opposite, though, I usually had my turn planned out until someone either a used my die or moved another dice to where the dice, the die was, and re rolled it to something that I didn't need.
0: Six of one, half a dozen the, 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 the other. Either true. either somebody gets a bonanza or someone randomly gets something that's inefficient. It's,
1: the other way they sort of try to lessen the blows there's lots of bonuses to the dice so even though the die isn't going to give you what you want maybe the bonus will get you what you need
0: yeah so at the start of the game every quadrant of the board gets a special bonus card and when you allocate a die to any one of the spokes on that quadrant you trigger the card and this does serve to introduce a level of flexibility into the resources and it's one of the reasons why the game functions because Without that level of flexibility, sometimes the game would just lock and you wouldn't be able to get one of those resources at all. As it is, you can very inefficiently, in some contexts... Convert a couple of resources into the resource you want or pay money, which is scarce for the resource. And that part's fine. It didn't, it, but it, to me, it felt like it wasn't so much as adding a bonus in some cases or setting up a combo or letting me take advantage of something. To my mind, it felt mostly like it was compensating for a resource allocation schema that was clever, but didn't really work.
1: True. I was talking more of the actual dice bonuses. That you oh, get. my apologies. Yes. So when you claim the buildings, there's these tokens that you can get. And if you have $3 handy, you can allocate these. Rubles, rubles. Walker. Rubles. Sorry. If you have the. Our rubles, listeners
0: don't like it when we call everything dollars. The rubles ready. When you have the rubles ready. Ready rubles. Rub-
1: ready rubles. You can, instead of putting it face down, you can put it face up on a particular die. And every time you roll that die, you can use that bonus. So it's another way you can either. You know, get resources or help you, you know, get
0: stuff you need. I did really like that part. You called it an element of a tableau builder, and when you initially said tableau builder, I didn't know what you mean. But you're kind of right. You're kind of tricking out your set of abilities so as to try to compensate for, again, the vicissitudes of resource generation. It's expensive and it's time-consuming. But it is worth it, and you do see dividends. That part is probably my favorite part of the game, because what it does is it dovetails with the building elements of actually constructing the aforementioned Red Cathedral, even though that's not what it was called at the time. So let's talk a little bit about that. So we have I've already talked about the action of claiming resources. Another kind of action you can do is claim a building site. And as much as I love the fact that in the process of claiming a building site, you can be tricking out your uh, your flexibility in terms of using these dice... It never made me feel like I really had a pressure for building because the way it works is you're claiming a card and you're the only one who gets to build that card from now on. The game wants you to, wants to make you feel like it's a risk to claim a building that you can't finish. But that risk is utterly toothless, I found in my experience because in theory, you want to only claim a building that you can already satisfy because if somebody finishes another building card that's above the one you claimed, then you get embarrassed and lose points. In practice, this results in maybe a couple of points over the course of the game, and so I never felt any pressure with respect to claiming a building card. The only pressure I ever felt was, did I have the money so I could claim a cool ability or not? Past that, eh. well, I
1: felt ahead of like a whole there was a whole bunch of a huge decision space there in choosing the building. Because like you said, you really wanted to choose one that you had resources for already. Two, it's a huge part of end scoring. And three, that's where you get those dice bonuses. So you're like scanning the board, seeing which bonuses are available, where you have resources, you know, available to finish that building, and where can I you know, get in and get more points for end of the game.
0: Sure. The end game scoring, which we'll talk about later, I liked, and I liked the claiming the bonuses, as I said, but this whole element of competing for building spots, I didn't really feel like it manifested. And I wish that there had just been more teeth in terms of the timing of building of the the penalty for not uh, for claiming a building and then not finishing it. Uh, you can have a whole bunch of claimed building markers even at the end of the game, and there's no penalty for that whatsoever. And so this tension that you allude to of, well, trading this off versus the other, eh, much of the time you can just choose a building site for one of those reasons, ignore everything else, and you're not going to pay for it at the end of the game.
1: And one little slight thing to that as well, where you where, what you're claiming these building sites with are your flags, and there's also a decision on where you're going to pull these flags off your board. I didn't see any flags. What I saw were flying squid. Okay, there were flying squids on your board, and, Thank you. and you claimed buildings with your flying squid because they're so smelly, no one else would want to go there.
0: No, no, no. Fly, flying squid are excellent four persons. This is well known in the context of, of manufacture. Have you ever seen a squid foreman operate eight hammers simultaneously? It would be a sight to see. It's truly impressive. So, like I was saying you get to decide where
1: to pull these off your board and it'll give you different benefits depending on where you pull them off. They're not, it's this is not a huge decision but it's yet something else that that makes the game interesting and different every time.
0: Eh, I mean you pull it you pull it from your inventory track so you can hold more resources or sometimes if what you want to do is put the tile you're claiming onto your white track you take it from the white track and there's two choices. You either take it from inventory or add it to your white. And there's no notion. Now, I, I kind of appreciated it because I do find it sometimes frustrating when you have one of those player boards where, well, in order to be able to claim anything, you're going to have to remove a whole bunch of things first. This is very straightforward. Are you taking the token onto a white space? Well, then take the flag from a white space. There you go. This is not a criticism. This is. I, don't, I, don't, I, I just gonna... don't think this, this is a huge tension filled. Let, let's talk about the
1: inventory. I like the Let's. inventory. I like the fact that it's limited and you sort of have to plan your turnout. You can't just, you know, accumulate tons of resources like you can in some games, and then just sit and start, you know, hitting end game storing scoring stuff at the end. Like we've seen happen in other games.
0: I agree with you that the inventory constraint is something you have to navigate. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder that this was just a way to force you into more of the vicissitudes of the random resource generation, right? If you could sit on, and I'm not suggesting this would be a better game, but I wonder if you could just sit on eight clay for the entirety of the game until you needed them, well, then you'd be less at the mercy of the dice. And so maybe that would be better, maybe that would be worse, but ultimately it just felt like because I couldn't store things, I was more at the mercy of what the, the dice results happened to be on the resource board. So we've we've talked about claiming a
1: building, which is an action. We've talked about moving the dice, which is an action. And then the third and final action that you can decide to do on your turn is building the actual cathedral itself. And it's fairly straightforward. In some cases, you're moving resources from your inventory onto the cards that you've claimed. But there is another slight thing that you can do, and this is building the decorations because this is going to tie into a unique uh, scoring mechanism that they've employed in this game, whereas there are victory points. I'm not sure. What do they call? Favor. They have favor, which is regular victory points, and they have prestige points, which which is jumping at the beginning. I think it's up to five at a time, and then it slowly peters out when it gets around the board. Mark didn't see this sort of mature out into anything interesting. I thought sometimes there was cases where... I felt it was kind of interesting because there are penalties you can take which will push you back to the last prestige marker and there are some actions out there that will let you jump to the next prestige marker. So if you get your favor just right where you're right either on a prestige marker or just one ahead, then you can leap fairly far forward. And these decorations did that in spades. If you did a fully tricked out door or window. Bedazzled is the official term, yes. Bedazzled the the hell out of this thing. Then uh, you would jump three prestige markers ahead. And in some cases, that would be huge.
0: Essentially, what it does is it encourages you to bedazzle as early as you possibly can. Because as you say, these tiers these stepping stones get smaller and smaller. Eventually, one prestige is worth one favor point, and they become indistinguishable. And that's fine. I, I didn't object to the prestige thing. It just didn't manifest in a particular interesting way. No, it well, was, that's why I say. It, it said, was just a way to incentivize early bedazzlement. And sometimes at the cost, I felt of really weird timing considerations. Like, well, I don't want to bedazzle now, because I'm just one favor away from the next prestige threshold. So what I should do is just try to find some way to get that one point, and then I'll bedazzle. So it was fine. All right, let's
1: talk about the scoring. I think that's what we have left. Absolutely. Besides some other points. Scoring was pretty well, it all came down to the cathedral. As well it should. As well it should. There's a point at ending the game, which I'll talk about later, but uh, you counted up the completed parts of the cathedral, plus the decorations, and whoever had the majority there would get the majority of the points, depending on how much of it was completed, and that would zip you around the board to see... Who was the winner?
0: Yeah, the endgame scoring is very interactive. The competition evolves as the sections of the cathedral get built up and thus are worth more. And so suddenly people start edging in any way they can, either by snaking that last building piece or by putting in a decoration when, uh, when they weren't there to begin with. And I really enjoyed that part. It, it was tight in a way that claiming the building sites wasn't. Right, And I I just wanted more of that element of desperately trying to compete in terms of the timing. I didn't like how relaxed it felt to claim something and then build it 17 turns later. I didn't feel it really adds anything, but the way, and this is especially something you get from the benefit of repeated plays, seeing how consequential the endgame scoring really is, because the vast numbers of points that get disgorged. And so it's a very solid area-majority element, and I really like area-majority games, and so I did really approve of how that shook out.
1: So the one part I didn't like about the end is whoever gets their, you know, final building built, they get to jump ahead three spots. And I just always hate the I am winning, so I get to win more sort of uh way to go.
0: Really? I I liked it. It was one of the few tempo pressures that the game exerted. I, I think I really feel as
1: though this game needed that, and I'm glad it's there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I really like the pace of this game, how you're, you're pushing the game forward where you have your flags out. People see that, you know, you're about to end the game and they're, and they're desperately trying to get the, you know, the last little decorations because you could have went really hard into a certain tower. And now that you're ending the game, they're just putting out decorations and they're, they can't beat you in certain places. They're just trying to get the little tiny points that they can in their last turn.
0: Love it. I wish that that level of tension was maintained more throughout the game as it was i never really felt the 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 direct need to compete with my opponents until i saw that somebody had all their flags out and then i would start wondering about when they would have enough resources to finish it or whether i would be able to get and finish all my pieces before somebody else did i wish that that level of interaction that level of concern over my opponent's actions had permeated more of the game
1: I thought it scaled really well. We played it at a bunch of different player counts. I, th- I thought I played I played it even solo, uh, two-player and four-player. I think it played very well at all those counts. Agreed. Uh, replay- replayability. So we talked about all the different sectors of the board had different abilities. They're going to be random every time. Uh, but
0: they're all of a piece.
1: They are. So it, every,
0: it, every quadrant has three different cards they can have. But this is the one that gives you extra build actions. This is the one that lets you convert resources for resources. This is the one that lets you convert resources for money. I am not saying
1: it's a huge difference, but it is a slight difference. It is. And the order on which, you know, what the spaces do, that sort of mixes up. And I was thinking about why, why it matters where those pieces are. And I think sometimes if the resources are all clumped together in one section, you can see where they would be all... You know, all the dice would end up being there and then, you know, it would take them a while to get back around again. You know what I mean? I can see where the spacing of those tokens would
0: matter. I mean, maybe, but every time a die pings, you re-roll it and it could be a one just as easily as it could be a six.
1: This is true.
0: Can we talk about the art? I want to just go, let me just hit
1: the rest of those. No, we
0: can't talk about the art?
1: We can, 100%, but I want to talk about the fact
0: that, but I want to talk about the art.
1: There's different cathedrals that you can build. The sort of layouts are slightly different. Some of them, uh, you know, will be make all of the towers the same sort of point
0: values, where some are much different than others. And sometimes the the high value towers on the right hand side. Sometimes the high value towers on the left hand side. And there are different
1: bonuses. Like we talked about all the bonus tokens, they could be in different spots in the cathedral and even the mix that's out there because you're left over with a bunch. So they're going to be different every time and where you put them out on the cathedral could be different as well. And how you put them on your board, you know, you could take a different, like uh, I've been using different strategies. Like the first time I played, you know, I always took resources for the thing. The second time I tried it with dice and you try different types of strategies, taking different bonus tokens. So I like how it plays out differently every time.
0: Can we talk about the art? We can. The graphic design I thought was very interesting. I love the board. The resource board is gorgeous. I love the backs of the cards, which you never see during gameplay, unfortunately. This, according to the the publisher, this is a sort of a tribute or an homage to an Ivan uh, Russian artist called Ivan Bilibin, who, although he lived in the 20th century, he sort of uh, he illustrated a lot of Russian folk tales, or even. Traditional tales from the people of the Rus. I don't know if you remember Rurik, Don of Kiev, but the the Empire of Rus. And I really like that visual style. Everything else is serviceable, but the board and the cards, when you get to see them, were really nice. Yeah, iconography was fine. Everything played out well. They had all the actions
1: laid out on your board. So you could look down and sort of when you explain the game, everything was, you know, easy to understand. The only very, very minor thing was the inventory track. I wish they'd reverse the numbers because there's nothing in the game that you need to know how many resources you have. But it'd be nice just to look down on the board and see how many spots you have left over. So if they reverse the numbers and you could look down and say, I got four spots left. If I take, you know, very minor gripe.
0: Yep, very simple, very accessible game, visually appealing in some areas, perfectly service- serviceable in the rest. And I do have to give in a special shout-out. I really do value this. This sounds super petty, but as somebody who's been collecting games for many years, I really appreciate this. The box is precisely the size that it needs to be, and no larger. I love it when you get strategy games that are of a, uh, of a decent enough heft and a decent enough weight, strategically speaking, and in terms of rules grit, in very small boxes. This is a great box. It's a ton of game in a little box a ton of game in a little box i agree so ultimately where where i'm sitting with the red cathedral I'll, I'll happily play it if it's put in front of my face but ultimately i think that the clever bits don't really reach their full potential, and in some cases even undermine the quality of the decision-making of the game. One thing that I couldn't help but compare, because the key gimmick, the key conceit, and I don't mean this in a negative connotation, is precisely this dice resource generation element. And I couldn't help but compare it in my head to Blackout Hong Kong, by Alexander Fister, which similarly uses a rondel arrangement and dice allocation to determine who uh, who gets access to what resources, but unlike in the Red Cathedral in Blackout Hong Kong, this affects everyone equally, and so I'm not prior I'm not penalized for the excellent turn that my right hand neighbor took, or benefiting from the terrible turn that my right hand neighbor took. And similarly, just like in Red Cathedral, you can spend resources to to juke what the dice say for you, and that matters. And ultimately, I also think, although this is at this point comparing apples and oranges, that Blackout Hong Kong does a does a better job with the resources you generate. Because ultimately in the Red Cathedral, you generate these resources and then you just ship them to cards that you then flip over to get points. And if it weren't for the end game scoring, which introduced a level of tension and competition, the game would be thoroughly dull as I generate the wood, I put the wood on this card, the card gives me seven points. I generate the stone, I put the stone on this card, it gives me six points. Done this a million times before in a million other Euro games. So I do appreciate the fact that it does differentiate itself. And there are some clever bits that I do like the way the tokens work and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, I, I think that the red cathedral is ultimately an uneven offering in the Euro game sphere. True.
1: But I think it's very accessible. I think it's very easy to teach Three simple actions, there's a little bit of fiddliness in some of them, but overall I think you get it onto the table and start playing quite quickly. I would play it any time, and sometimes I might even suggest it.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just rolled a dice at gmail.com. That is J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.